I don't know if we would, at times I don't know if we would recognize the early church if we saw it. Because it's been, it's been the pictures that we've got are so very different these days. Um, we get, you know, we talk about the early church and we like parts of it, but we don't like other parts of it. Uh, we're rather selective at times. Um, but there are some amazing things that are going on in the life of the of the early Christ followers. Acts chapter 5 is where we're at. I'm going to read verses 12 down through verse 32, which is a sizable portion, almost all of the chapter. <clears throat> and I will tell you now that I don't expect to get through everything today. Uh, so I'll probably do a reprise, especially on the last part of the message today, uh, and and come back to it next next Sunday. Just there's so much to cover, but I think we'll get a picture of uh, of the miraculous working and nature of the church here. So let's read together for a little bit. Follow along with me as I read. I'm reading from New International Version, Acts chapter five, <clears throat> beginning of verse twelve. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported. We found the jail securely locked with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, look. The men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. 
God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now that's a that's a powerful story of a pretty good sized portion of scripture to look at. I want to take a go at that today, simply because I, I believe there's 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 power in in what is recorded there and it has application to us. So let me let me work on, on that. For a number of years, uh, we had, uh, and I can't remember where we, where we got it, I, I, I have an idea, but we had a, a, a kind of like a magnetic uh, sign stuck on the refrigerator. Maybe, maybe, maybe it was just something we had to have fixed there. But it, it, simply, it simply had these things, expect a miracle, expect a miracle. Probably came from Oral Roberts. That'd be my guess. Uh, one of those kinds of places where they try to just kind of get people just focused on uh, on finding help for trouble or challenges that people face. And sometimes sometimes it's hard when we deal with the struggles of, of life. We just kind of get worn down, as Frank was talking about a while ago. Even the weather will have a kind of a downer effect on us. So we just kind of feel like all the sap's dripping out of the tree. And, and you see, so this business of being able to have a positive expectation um, in, in our walk with Christ is a, is a challenge that we face. That slogan probably could have been stuck on the back of uh, more than a few of the Christ followers' uh, carts or the back end of a mule or something, you know, uh, you know, as they wandered around, expect a miracle. I, I don't. Know that that's always the best place to put it on a mule, but but be it as it may, it 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 was a it was probably wouldn't be an unusual thing based upon their experience as the body of Christ in the first four or five chapters that we've already looked at, first four chapters we've looked at. So God has been up to something in in the birthing, uh, in the empowerment of this body of believers, and He's been doing some very unusual things. All you have to do is track back and read the first several chapters, and you see really strange things happening out of the usual, things that you don't see nowadays. And it's not that we have to see them nowadays, just that God was up to something, and he wanted to demonstrate his power and his might to, to the watching world around in process as well. <clears throat> so let me give you today just some of the the nature of this church. I entitled the message of the Church of the Miraculous. Um, I, I, I didn't say the Church of the Immaculate Conception. I didn't say the Church of the whatever, you know, and we have all kinds of groovy names for churches, you know. You, you can go and find you can find the Church of What's Happening Now, you know, just all kinds of titles to churches. And, and, and sometimes they're <clears throat> sometimes they're intentionally distanced from denominational things because in our day it seems like people want to have not so much they will go to church because they won't go to church necessarily because of a denominational preference they'll go because something's going on in that church and it's a local church and it's a neighborhood church a very popular phrase community church <clears throat> all kinds of words to describe a church here I suppose if they had something over the door it would be the church of the miraculous <clears throat> because that's what seemed to be happening more often than not when the body of Christ was gathering together. 
So what makes a miraculous church then? So let me look at a couple of things. First, in verses 12 through 14, I want to talk about a church that was miraculous in its growth. Uh, and we put it that way. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. All the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. It seems like they could not stop the church from growing. Even when they showed up and some people died because they lied against the Holy Ghost and they, they, they suffered whatever event there, cardiac event or whatever it was, or a divine stop the ticker kind of thing. Um, and so quickly, we didn't talk about this last time, but, but boy, they, they didn't waste any time. They died and they put them right in the ground. You know, so they must have had a cemetery outside the church because it wasn't very far. And a few hours later, in comes Sapphira, and same deal. So they didn't worry about embalming and arranging for all the details. You know, they just got, you know, uh, okay, God, you showed up. Now we just put them in the ground. Um, so this is an unusual kind of thing. That didn't happen to us last week, but it happened at that early church in that particular Sunday. And so there was this kind of, whoa. And, and, I, I call it here a, a holy repulsion event. How to grow a church? Have people drop dead in the service. It's not the kind of advertising that you want, you know. Uh, uh, it, but but it was an it was a supernatural event. But yet it distanced. It it almost kept people at distance, and that's how they put it. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded among the people. The apostles had uh, a, a new uh, new understanding of the holiness of God, and the people picked up on that. And it was like, well, I don't know. This, I mean, they really take this business seriously, and God takes this purity business seriously. And so there was this kind of like holy repulsion, one of the qualities in terms of this growth. And yet it, it didn't deter the growth of the church. In verse 14, I, I would point out that there was a constancy to their body. It puts it this way. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord, and they were added to their number. It was, it's like it was a constant growth that was going on. We've seen that in several of the other chapters before. We have a 1,000 or 2,000 or more, and it seems like the church beginning to swell, even though there's this holy awe of God that's a part of that growth church, church growth. We don't, you don't, <laughs> I've never seen a church growth seminar that says you need to have some holy repulsion. I've not seen that. They don't, that's not the normal bill of fare, but that the sense of the awesomeness of God uh, <clears throat> that kept people away. And yet this church continued to grow because of that. Uh, in, in verse uh, uh, 12, it says, all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. King James says they were in one accord in Solomon's colonnade. And that's part of the temple complex. It's kind of like a portico that could probably handle a few thousand people even uh, in terms of an area of gathering together. And there was a sense of togetherness or unity there. But so it was miraculous in its growth. Despite the things that were going on, the church continued to grow. It was a church that was miraculous in its ministry. What was the ministry of the church about? Look at verse 12. It says, There were apostles that performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. 
uh, it included those signs and wonders. That was part of their ministry. It was an answer to prayer at the end of chapter 4, verses 29 and 30, when when they were together and they they would they would pray. Here's their prayer. Now, Lord, consider their threats. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That was their prayer. And God answered their prayer. And he did that. And I believe he did that working through the apostles. It wasn't just everybody got turned loose and all kind of things kind of broke loose. It was through the structure of the leadership, the apostles, that those things happened. And I believe that at least in part uh, it occurred because this was that interim period where the Holy Spirit had descended on the church. They had no Bible except Old Testament to work from. They were still developing the leadership and the whole issue of the inspiration of Scripture and the writing of the books of the Bible by Peter or by Paul or by James or whoever else was part of that inspirational process where the books of the Scriptures were eventually written and then combined, pulled together for a, a basis for their theology. I think that at least in this window of time, the absence of a written New Testament by which to measure someone's teaching, God used signs and wonders to authenticate his message. I find it interesting that in our world, particularly, in, I've heard more stories in terms of overseas ministries, where the word of God goes into an area and some Unusual things happen, miraculous things happen, that in large part might be because God needs to validate this message so that people understand this is truth, this is real, this is supernatural, this is spiritual, this is, this is bigger than just you, this is more than some kind of mechanism. It, it was here characterized by signs and wonders. And I don't know that today we always have to demand signs and wonders. I don't think we, I don't think we need to do that. I will certainly want to give God the opportunity to show up anytime he wants to. And I'm in for that. But I don't think that we have to say, okay, unless you start seeing some of these things happen in your church or your churches, that God really isn't there. I don't buy that. I think there's truth in terms of the truth of God's word. And we rely upon that, not the signs and wonders that are a part of that. This church was characterized by unity because they were pulled together and they met together in Solomon's colonnade, that porch kind of thing. Uh, I think that was the thing that pulled them together. And, and the church not only had its signs and wonders and experienced unity, but experienced healings. And some of the, some of the stories that are part of that scripture, verses 14 and 15, are fascinating. Verse 14 said they added to the church, but then 15 says, As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Verse 15 is probably a response of, uh, of, the, of the believers that they had such an expectation that God was able to do the unusual that they felt they needed to put feet to their prayers, and they brought people out into the streets. Now, the scriptures say here that it's, the hope was that so at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. But it doesn't say anybody was healed there. It says that was their hope, 
But eventually it does say in the next verse, <clears throat> verse 16, that all of them were healed. So whether it's these believers who are bringing their, their needy people who were, who were sick, or verse 16 says crowds gathered and also, also from the towns around Jerusalem bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, that all of them were healed. So there were some unusual things occurring. And I believe that that second group uh, of, of verse 16 are people who just see that God is up to something and, and they, they have need and they bring people with their need. And the needs are in a variety of ways. They're, they're, they need both physical and emotional or spiritual healing. If you look, I think I put it in, yeah, uh, the, the reference there in terms of Mark 6, 53 to 56 and Matthew 9, you look at those portions of Scripture later, uh, and you'll find them as a reference point that that was a part of ministry. They, when people had need, I know that they, we, sometimes we just run to the doctor, you know, but I want to go to Dr. Jesus first with the needs. And so I think it just, Jesus was saying, here's, here's an opportunity. Let's see, what God, let's see what God can do in terms of direct intervention. So I want to give God the opportunity first. And these people started to respond to the reality that God was able to do uh, mighty things, uh, not only demonstration and signs and wonders, but also to provide healing for people as they had need. I think that at least a part of this is because the church was in a good place. They were in a place where they understood the holiness of God and they understood their absolute need to live with authenticity or integrity before God. I, I believe that that had to be there. And so the, the phrase that I put there is the church pure is the church powerful. When the body of Christ is in the right position, right relationship with God, so that he can choose to, to, to pour out his spirit to, to do signs and wonders or to provide healing or to provide power for witness, whatever it may be, when they're in that spot, God can do anything. And I th we just got to get in the right position. Uh, you know, we get worried about, you know, how do we got to get a program going? We got to get this. <sighs> oh. God delivers from programs that are not empowered by the Spirit of God. They're just our ideas, how we can break people through the door. I was talking with my daughter in Pittsburgh this week. She uh, works for Pittsburgh Kids Foundation, which is a nonprofit that helps uh, troubled youth and uh, uh, provides camping experiences and ongoing ministry to them. And they recently had their fundraiser gala in Pittsburgh. And uh, so they, they rent this place and, and they uh, try to encourage people to give to help support the ministry. She said, I said, well, how did it go? She said, well, we got enough for the next couple of months for payroll. She's kind of like the accountant for that. And so she says, I'm glad for that. It, it takes one less worry off your back. But she said, an interesting thing, she said, when they, when they do fundraisers, there are, there are cycles to things. There are, there are fads. She didn't use the word fads, but, but I guess fads would be right. There are some ways that seem to be trendy. That was her word, trendy in terms of the way in which funds are raised for organizations. And so she was talking about some of those kinds of things. I, I, I don't want the church to just get into a fad or trend kind of thing. Um, I, I want the church to discover living life in the power of God's spirit, 
living authentically and honestly before God so that he can be he can choose to do whatever he wants because he finds somebody that's available, somebody that's willing to be honest with God and be used of God. And I, I think that's that's where we need to go. I don't wanna, I'll, I'll pound that pulpit if I had a pulpit. I'd pound that one in terms of the importance of that kind of thing. Physical healing is a poor substitute for spiritual salvation. Miracles are only truly helpful if they bring us to God. And the same way is true with other kinds of things uh, in process. There was a, This church was miraculous in its growth, miraculous in its ministry. It was also miraculous in its witness. And we have this wonderful story in, in verse 17 and following. So here's, here's what I want to do. I want to try to focus in on that a little bit. I, I, I have there... I don't know how you put well. I know how you put sermons together. I mean, you can vary it, kind of thing. But sometimes they talk about having uh, three points in a poem. You know, uh, you get three points. Well, I got four points. I don't have no poems, but I got four points. But I don't think I'm going to get to the fourth point very much. But I have in mind that next week we'll come back on that fourth point, and I'm going to jump back to another verse that we're going to come to right now. So. Verse 17 talks about uh, their witness, the miraculous witness, despite several things. First of all, despite incarceration. I don't know when the last time you've been jailed for Jesus. But I don't think that's probably been part of our journey very much. We, we don't get that kind of pressure that if we speak up for Jesus, we're going to get thrown in the slammer somewhere, even if it's a house arrest kind of thing and not a federal penitentiary. Here is a situation in which the religious leaders got all hot and bothered. The high priest, verse 17, the members of the Sadducees, they were filled not with the spirit, but they're filled with, filled with jealousy. That's the thing that really got them enraged. And so they arrested the apostles, put them in public jail. Apparently that was within their purview to do that in terms of the religious authority. And to essentially this might have been like a, a more of a... a even a detention area, even in the temple complex where, where they were incarcerated. Can you imagine the Jerusalem Times coming out with the news? What's the local newspaper? Wilkes-Barre, what? Scranton, what? Scranton Leader, Times Leader. Okay, so can you imagine the Times Leader of that day. Day one, gospel healers locked up like common criminals. Day two, Prisoners vanished into thin air. I mean, you write the headline kind of thing. This was the first of three recorded supernatural prison escapes in the book of Acts. Here, Acts chapter 12, verses 6 through 10, and a wonderful story that, Lord willing, we might get to one day. And then also in chapter 16 with Paul and Silas. And we're familiar with some of those stories, at least they might be in the back of our mind somewhere. But these are one of those miraculous things that, that happen uh, as a part of that uh, powerful demonstration. They were arrested, put in jail. Verse 19, during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail, brought them out. Go stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. That's the part I'm probably going to go back to next week because we don't probably won't have time to dig into it very deeply this morning. Go stand, speak. That's that's those that that I'll get to that, that but it won't be till next week. But it, it, despite the incarceration, they had a miraculous or a powerful witness. 
Uh, I mentioned before Child Evangelism Fellowship is a ministry that works primarily targeting to children to help them come to places of faith in Christ. Uh, when CEF does their uh, ministry, they do a balance between a Bible story and a mission story. If you've ever been to five-day clubs or good news clubs, they'll have those two components, the two wheels on which that cart runs. The Bible stories can be any number of things. The missionary stories are fascinating ones. <clears throat> the story is told of John Payton, who was a missionary in New Hebrides Islands. And one night, in his, uh, as the story is told, one night hostile natives surround the mission station and they are intent on burning out the Paytons and killing them. Peyton and his wife prayed during that terror-filled night that God would deliver them, and they prayed that night true. When daylight came, they were amazed to see their attackers leave. It was not until a year later when the chief of that tribe was converted to Christ. And re remembering what had happened, Peyton asked the chief what had kept them from burning down the house and killing them. The chief replied in surprise, who were all those men in there with you? Now, Peyton knew that there were no men present. It was he and his wife. But the chief said he was afraid to attack because he had seen hundreds of big men in shining garments with drawn swords circling the mission station. Now, can that happen today? I think God, God can do anything he chooses in terms of the miraculous. I don't think that we have to demand that he does that, but I think when when a, a guy like the Paytons were in the right spot, praying with the right heart, and they're in God's purpose, that God could do the, the amazing, the supernatural, the sign, the wonder of it that kept them, that protected them in, in process, even despite uh, the situation. Here you've got the apostles. This is not just Peter and John or whoever. This is all of the gang are, are given the privilege of this, this jailing situation. So, it, it's it's they get to share in the fun that Peter and John were, were dealing with. But, but in, in, in that, God does the miraculous. Uh, the angel of the Lord shows up. Uh, have you seen an angel lately in church? Uh, you know... Uh, you can probably look at the person beside you and say, you're not an angel, so I know you're okay. But the supernatural occurs, and it occurs here, despite the incarceration that's a part of the experience there among those disciples. And he gives them that command, and we'll probably get back to that probably next week. Despite incarceration, the story goes on, and so their witness is strong here despite intimidation. Jump down to verses 26 through 28. And, and the story is a fascinating one, but verse 26 at the, it says at, the, at that, 
The captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They didn't use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. And here's the intimidation. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. And so they intimidate them. They had already previously given them uh, some commands, some orders. Don't do this. I want to tell you that faith doesn't make trouble disappear. It doesn't make trouble disappear. It makes troubles appear less frightening because it puts them in the right perspective. It gives perspective. Don't expect everyone to react favorably when you choose to stand for Christ, wherever it is, whatever the arena or setting is, when you share something as dynamic as your faith in Christ. Some will be jealous, some will be afraid, some will be threatened. You can kind of expect some kind of negative reaction, whether it's among family or friends or, or co-workers or people in community. But remember that you must be concerned, more concerned, about serving God than about the reaction of people. As a matter of fact, that led to that one verse, 29, we must obey God rather than men. Are there things, are there people who intimidate you? People, they may be neighbors, they may be people in family, they could be work associates who, who have already sent a message clearly enough that please don't talk to me about anything that's religious. We run into that, you know, and, and, and when, when somebody sends up that flag, I think you probably need in some ways to honor that issue, but don't let your light be diminished. We are the we are the light of the world. We say we are the light of the world. We are the city on a hillside. Don't let their intimidation diminish your purpose to shine for Jesus wherever He has put you. Despite that intimidation, they chose to obey God in process rather than just men. And also, it was miraculous in its witness, despite the indignation that occurred. Down to verse 33, we didn't read this, but here we are. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. Talk about response to the message of the gospel. Sometimes it doesn't always come out the way that you would expect. Sometimes people are hesitant to respond favorably for a whole variety of reasons, and they choose instead to get mad. Sometimes when you share the message of the gospel, people get glad. Other times, people get mad. And you say, I don't want to hear any more about that. And uh, that was the, the, the command that had been referred to in Acts 4, verses 17 and 18. If you, to, if you jump back for just a moment there, 17 and 18, to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in, in his name, in this name. And they called them in again. They, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Peter and John replied, judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Those verses in 17 and 18 and also verse, verse 20 are the refusal of Peter and John to buckle under 
to the intimidating factor and the, the, the anger and the indignation of the people that were the religious people around them. This is a church very much alive by the power of God's Spirit. And they, 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 they know enough that if they can choose to live authentically for God, God's going to take care of the other stuff that may come flying at them. He will keep them in the midst of even opposition and antagonism that comes. Let me give you a little window into where I'm going to go next week. Uh, um, just a brief, just a brief look, because the church was miraculous not only uh, in its growth, not only in its witness, not only in its ministry, but in its message, the message of the church. Uh, so, verses 29 to 32 that we read said. We have to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed. Here's the message. Here's what they respond with information-wise. Killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. That's the message in, in a nutshell. If you jump down to verses 41 and 42, the apostles leave the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they've been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name, the capital N name, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house. They never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. That was the message. They had a message to proclaim. One of the things that we'll learn as we look into that next week is that God is very concerned about protecting that message preserving that message and letting that message get spread around. The Church of the Miraculous. I don't know these days what we are kind of expecting at City Light Church. We, we, we pray regularly, Barb and I, as we pray over the ministry of the church, just kind of, Lord, what do you have for this group of people? What are the plans? And we don't know all the ins and outs. I know that in recent dialogue uh, with the superintendent, at least by email exchange, uh, he indicated that he would really like to have, uh, maybe by mid-November, several resumes that he can present. Uh, I don't know the format for that, but he'll, he'll work that. He'll convey that information. Uh, but but it's going to take a very a special work of God to make it all fit together right. It, it, but it's got to be a God thing. It won't be, well, let's see, I think if we do this and here's how much we can afford and then I think we ought to get this guy and, or this person or whatever. If we start calculating that way, um, I, I think we, we're, we're missing it. I think we've got to be people who are saying, Lord, what do you have for us? Just like this early church. Lord, what do you have in mind for us to do? How do you want to grow this place? What do you want to do in terms of expanding its ministry and influence? What do you want to do in terms of the message that we have to declare? How, how do you want to do that? And so I, I think that's where we need to be uh, very much in, as a people in prayer. Uh, uh, yes. <laughs> 
you know, we used to have sayings. They say Sunday morning you see how popular the 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 the, the, the pastor is. Sunday night to see how popular the church is. Wednesday night you see how popular God is. Sometimes, you know, we miss those opportunities. I just think we, we absolutely need to be people who are dependent. So uh, I'm wondering if we're expecting any miracles these days. Uh, if we can put a, a banner up somewhere, expect a miracle. I don't want to get focused on the miraculous. I want to get focused on Jesus in the whole process. Is there a miracle that God has in mind for us in terms of experiencing growth? Is there a miracle that would energize the ministry of City Light Church? Is there a miracle that would empower its witness to a watching world? You're going to do an event in the, in the very near future in terms of the, the Light the Night event. You don't know who's going to come. Maybe, maybe you've invited people. Maybe you're hoping they're going to come. But you don't know who's going to come by and who's going to stop in to, get the olfactory senses and smell those hot dogs. And they say, hot dog, this looks like a good place to go. And so they come in and we get them fed and we get the opportunity to share with, with them or, or their children some crafts or fun or games or, or, or some teachings, some lessons, Bible story, whatever it is that's a part of the plan. And I don't know what all that is. All I'm saying is that if we don't bathe that whole thing in prayer and if it isn't absolutely dependent upon the Spirit of God to do far more than we could ask or think, we're just going through an exercise. We're going through an activity that we've done for X number of years in the past. I want to say, if, you, if you've not been praying for that, you, <laughs> we better get on our face before God and say, God, we long to connect with people in our community. Uh, and, and so we're going to do this and we're going to trust you to do the miraculous among us in expectation and trust that God will do far more than we could ask or imagine. So next week, I'm going to come back around on this whole issue of the message, and we're going to explore that a little bit more in this particular story, in particular verses 30, uh, 32 and following, and we'll finish reading the rest of the story. Because there's this fascinating little guy, a person that shows up. His name is Gamaliel. It won't be the last time we encountered him. But, but anyway, Gamaliel kind of shows up and offers a word of wisdom to kind of settle the, the, the temperature down a bit. All part of the plan of God to accomplish his work through, its, through the message and ministry uh, of the church. And, and God will show up even through uh, the work of other people who might not be part of the team, but God will use them just to accomplish his purpose and plan. So here we are today. The Church of the Miraculous, and we'll we'll dig down a little bit more next week on the miraculous nature of the message.